Welcome to episode 21 of the Mountainland Running Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Heiderscheidt from the University of Wisconsin Sports Medicine, and here with my co-host, Mountainland Physical Therapist, Mark Anderson. How are you, Mark? Doing well. Doing well. Excited to be here. Nice to see you in glasses, Brian. Hey, you're not supposed to tell anybody that. There's no video feed. <laughs> you look very uh, not, scholarly. Yeah, well, you know, it's called getting old. All right. Yeah, we can we can move on. What else do you have to talk about? Hey, just uh, you know, being in Utah, you know, basketball is a big deal right now. So we're excited for there's there's no snow in Utah right now, but the Utah Jazz are doing awesome. So those basketball lovers out there are pretty pretty excited. Yeah, we're in the same boat in Wisconsin with the with the Bucks. Uh, they're actually having a, a decent season against some other team from Massachusetts, Boston area. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> Yeah, so well, good, good luck. That's a little dig with our guest today, which we'll introduce shortly. Uh, but as a reminder to our audience, we have the 2018 Mountainland Running Summit. It'll be held this September 21st and 22nd at the Park City Marriott in Park City, Utah. Uh, check out our website, summit.mlrehab.com, for full details. Uh, as a reminder to our listeners, please send questions and feedback to podcast at mlrehab.com. Uh, we'll share those questions in future episodes and, of course, try to use that to select future content as well. All right. I want to get through that quickly today because we are joined by a fantastic individual and pro- very productive and prolific and sought-after uh, researcher uh, in the world of running medicine, Dr. Irene Davis. Dr. Davis is a physical therapist and professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School. She's also the founding director of the Spalding National Running Center. Dr. Davis is a professor emeritus in physical therapy at the University of Delaware, where she served in the faculty for over 20 years. Her research is focused on the relationship between lower extremity structure, mechanics, and musculoskeletal injury. She has pioneered the area of retraining faulty gait patterns in both walking and running, and has received funding from the Department of Defense, Army Research Office, and National Institutes of Health. Dr. Davis is a prolific author and speaker, as I mentioned, is a fellow and past president of the American Society of Biomechanics, a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine, and a fellow of the American Physical Therapy Association. And I'm happy to say, I believe she's a friend of mine. I hopefully (laughs) think that maybe I'm just biased and want that to be the case. So welcome, Dr. Davis, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. And yes, I definitely feel um, enriched by calling you a friend. Yeah, thanks. This has been great. So you and I have had a chance to work together quite a bit over the years. In fact, uh, Irene was, I met her first when I was a PhD student of Dr. Joe Hamill at University of Massachusetts. Irene came up and spent uh, many a day in a biomechanics lab and and worked with Joe. I know you and Joe have had a long-term relationship, professional relationship with publications and running and and whatnot. And and, uh, a lot of your your graduate students and his graduate students have kind of merged over the years and, and continued to work together. It's really true. It's like one big happy family. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we want to really give a chance to talk on a number of areas of your work. Um, and we could easily extend this beyond what we have time for the podcast. But I think it, it, it's worthwhile, I think, for for any listeners to kind of get a standpoint of the the professional history of each of the speakers, you know, that we really want to understand what you're doing now and what you've done most recently. But at the same time, I think it helps to kind of frame it in, in what you, what led you to where you are now? What, what kind of, what was the, what were the building blocks to get you where you are today? Okay. Well, um, 
I can start with high school. Um, didn't want to go to college right away, so I bought a Honda 350 motorcycle. You probably don't know this about me, Brian. Um, I couldn't even put my feet both down um, and plant them on the ground. Um, and so the first week, I ended up dumping the motorcycle over and over again. But I eventually learned how to ride it. It was a candy apple metal flake red motorcycle. I still have that. <laughs> Not that you remember the details or anything. No. And I, and I actually lived in South Carolina with my brother-in-law and I rode with a motorcycle gang and I spent my first year out of high school doing that trying to figure out what it is I wanted to do because I had sent a letter to J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI saying <laughs> I really wanted to be uh, an FBI agent because I had been watching Agent 99 and she was kissing these guys and killing them and escaping and running and it sounded so exciting and I loved the whole idea of figuring things out and so I was completely devastated when I got the letter from him and he told me that they I could be uh, an administrative assistant but they didn't let women in the FBI back then this is sort of this is definitely dating me um, and so I went to college not really knowing what I wanted to do. And I was at UMass and I, I really, you know, like many of us who are in biomechanics, I really enjoyed the human body um, and kind of wanted to do something in medicine, although uh, the University of Mass didn't have anything like that. So I did exercise science and um, but I knew I kind of wanted to marry that with medicine. So decided physical therapy was a really good choice to do that with. So went to the University of Florida and got my in physical therapy. And um, through my um, affiliations, I was uh, ended up at Woodrow Wilson Rehabilitation Center for one of my internships. And so my first three years as a PT was in spinal cord rehab, primarily. <laughs> and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I loved the problem solving. You have someone who has 25% of their muscle power, and they have to learn to move 75% of their body. So that is a bit of biomechanics, to have to mm -hmm. say, got me really interested in biomechanics and how we move our bodies. And um, so I went, I was in Charlottesville, I was near Charlottesville, Virginia. So I did my master's in biomechanics at Charlottesville, Virginia, working on something very different than what I'm doing now. I was um, working on a study looking at the difference between levers and rims with wheelchair users because I had been in spinal cord rehab and that's where the funding was for this particular program. Finished my master's. Um, but really um, wanted to continue to go on to my PhD, and they didn't have a very strong program at that time. So I moved on to the um, Penn State University and, um, you know, actually uh, wanted to go someplace that had biomechanics and was one of the very strong programs at that time and um, became uh, introduced to Peter Kavanaugh. And Peter is the, you know, one of the pioneers, those you know him, is one of the pioneers in running biomechanics um, and had done a lot of the foundational work, but didn't have a clinical background. And so it was really a great fit for me to take the science of biomechanics and merge it with the clinic you know, the medicine and, and as a physical therapist. And that's how I really developed my interest in lower extremity mechanics and, and injuries. And from there, once I finished my PhD, I went to the University of Delaware um, and I started my career there. And so I had been doing work in the area of orthotics, believe it or not. My PhD was looking at foot orthotics and its effect on the patellofemoral joint by putting these Steinman pins into patellas and femurs and tibias. Um, <clears throat> and I really wanted to continue that work, but, you know, finding people that are willing to have Steinman pins put into their patella tibia <laughs> is a little hard. So, you know, moved on to more, you know, general lower extremity mechanics, 
with an interest in the relationship between the foot and the knee, um, and also the relationship between uh, impacts. So I started thinking about impacts at that point. Um, and I don't know when you want me to stop talking. No, so you keep going. You're, okay. you're on a roll. Okay, I just don't. Yeah. So, so basically, you know, I started my work looking at um, the relationship between the foot and the knee, um, and pronation and, and knee pain, um, but then moved on to impacts because I was really interested in bone stress injuries. So I went from patellofemoral injuries to bone stress injuries. And those have been two major themes um, through a, a really a majority of my career. So I continued in both of them. Um, but when we talk about the impacts, I had done some studies looking at the difference between rear foot strikers and forefoot strikers, because Peter had noted very early on, Peter Kavanaugh, that their, their force profiles are different. So I looked at, you know, not only their force profiles, but how the, the movement patterns were, their kinematics, the kinetics, the differences. Um, and learning that, you know, forefoot strikers have lower impacts um, and they have different sort of kinematics as they land and everything seemed to be different in the beginning and early stance. But, um, but always thought that these forefoot strikers were sort of in the, the tails of the normal distribution. When you look at the distribution of people who run, very few of them actually land on the ball of their foot. So I kind of dismissed it a little bit and continued with my impact work. Um, and not so much strike pattern, um, and started looking at, and this was one of the, um, well, this was really my first study. It was a DOD-funded study with Joe Hamill, where we looked at the relationship between impacts and stress fractures, and also other injuries as well. And we found, um, in a retrospective way, that uh, impacts were related to injury. Um, and so, at that point, I started thinking, okay, I need to take, you know, my, my biomechanics hat off put my PT hat on and figure out um, how do I mitigate it? If I think that these impacts are related to injury, then we need to try to soften the foot strikes. We need to try to reduce those impacts. And how do you do that? So then I went on a little journey because I knew nothing about motor control. Um, I remember the big white Schmidt book. I don't know if you guys had it. <laughs> my pillow. It was very boring to me and it was all theory, which I found very hard. I like equations where you can take one side and say it equals this. It's very clear. So, um, so I started to kind of delve into the, the uh, motor control literature <clears throat> to learn how best to alter a movement pattern and came upon the work of Carolee Winstein, who really recommended that you need to provide feedback, that people can make the connection between seeing or feeling or hearing what's right and, and you know, with haptic or visual or audio, audible uh, sensory input, and then feeling the proprioception. So making that connection between what you see is correct and what you feel is correct, for example, if it's visual. And then you have to slowly fade that feedback so the person can then learn to do that on their own. So we went through a number of years of coming up with a number of different kinds of protocols to optimally retrain somebody, but in a practical way that would be applicable in a clinic. Because obviously you can't be treating people for months and months and months. You can't see people five days a week. Um, and so we came up with a protocol that uh, was... Uh, eight sessions over two to three weeks. And we also monitored whether these changes that we, that were created actually 
persisted at like a one or three or six month follow-up because if it doesn't persist, Mm -hmm. then it doesn't really, all that work is really for naught. Mm -hmm. So this is how we came up with this particular kind of um, paradigm that we have for our retraining. And then we started our retraining studies and we did some retraining studies for impacts. Um, We've done some retraining studies for alignment and our overall belief is that well-aligned soft landings are the best way to reduce injuries. Whether you're jump landing from a jump shot, whether you're landing from, you know, running single leg landings, regardless that those are, it's important that they're well-aligned and they're soft. And so, um, so continued kind of down that, that line of thinking, not really thinking much about footwear for sure, not thinking much about whether people have orthotics or not. And in fact, early in my career, I actually was the person who was teaching the orthotic section in our program. Hmm. I was uh, making all the orthotics in the clinic um, and I was prescribing footwear based on foot type just like, you know, many people still do today. Mm-hmm. So that was my thinking. So I'm thinking that way. I'm making orthotics. I'm doing this impacts research. I know that forefoot strikers have low impacts, but I hadn't really put it all together, right? Because even in our impact reducing study, we weren't asking people to transition at that point. So then comes along Chris McDougall, who gives me a call. Now, Chris McDougall was a journalist for the New York Times, right? And he calls me up and he says, hey, Irene, what do you think about the Nike free shoe? And this was in 2005. And I said, you know, I really hadn't even thought much about it, guys. I had heard about it. But you know, when a, when a journalist calls you and asks you a question, you don't want to sound like you don't know anything about it. So I said, hey, can I get back to you on this? <laughs> so I had just come from the, um, the World Congress meeting that was in Cleveland when we were dancing on the stage with the iliotibial band. That's yes. for another story. Um, <laughs> And Peter Brueggemann had done a study looking at the Nike Free and showed that just using this as a warm-up shoe for five months, that you had significant increase in the muscles of the foot, right? And up until then, I had always thought this foot is something that, you know, people who have foot-related problems or even knee-related problems that we think might be related to pronation, it's because those feet just don't have the ability to tolerate the loads of running and walking. And so they need support, right? But I start thinking about, again, back to my, my original, um, my role as a, as a rehab PT, we always gave people the least amount of bracing possible. So if somebody was, uh, you know, um, needed a wheelchair, we would get them the wheelchair with the lowest back. So we, they had to use their muscles as much as possible. If they had a lower extremity brace, we gave them the lowest profile brace. And so trying to get them to use their muscles as much as possible. And these are people who don't actually have intact neuromuscular systems, right, in some way. So I started thinking to myself, boy, you're, you know, you're really, you're approaching the foot in a completely different way than you approach anything else. And why are you doing that? So I really started to question myself in terms of, you know, why am I supporting a foot that has these muscles? You know, and this is also the time when this Nike free shoe came out and this research came out, this is a time when born to run came out. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that's actually another funny story because we were interviewed by Chris McDougall. He came to the lab, we tested him, we tested shoes and no shoes. He was having some issues with his Achilles. Um, 
And we started to see that even he, as running as barefoot, had actually no impact. It was a much softer landing. And so, you know, he had come, and it was a couple of years later when I got a call from someone that was riding on the train to New York City, and they said, hey, Irene, have you heard this book about this book, Born to Run? I said, no. And they said, yeah, you're in it. I'm like, really? <laughs> so Chris had been actually using this information to, part of this information, obviously, we were just one small part of it. Um, but, you know, the book itself had a lot of literature in it. So the book is a great story. It's a fun story to read. Um, and, and much of it is true. Um, I've met many of the characters and they are very much uh, as they are portrayed, pretty much as portrayed, I should say, you know, I'm not going to say that about everybody, but, um, but there were, he does bring some literature together and things like um, studies of Indian children who, um, you know, come from different communities and those who wear closed-toed shoes had flat-footedness at a much higher rate than those kids who went barefoot in India. And, you know, a number, and that was like in, I think in 1980s, that study was um, published in the journal of, uh, the British Journal of Sports Medicine, no, one of the JBJS. And so, you know, I started to pull some of this information together and start thinking, you know, maybe there is something to approaching the foot in a different way. And so that's really when I started thinking differently about it. Do you want me to stop yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to jump in with questions for sure, but no, we don't want you to stop by any means. So okay. in terms of, so with, with your, because you've done a, a, quite a few studies related to barefoot running and potentially thinking about transitioning people to barefoot running and safely going about that prospect of it um, and the importance of doing so. And I, and I think, you know, as I mentioned, safely at the timeline associated with it, because you, with this idea of gait retraining, many people will, will jump in and say, if you, if you modify somebody's gait too much, then you set them up for injury risk, right? So you know, taking somebody who is wearing shoes all the time to the potentially barefoot, are we creating some injury risk issues as well? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think what happened when this born to run thing, it was a craze, right? And so they went to the, the copper canes of, of Mexico and the Tamahumara who wear shoes that basically are flat bed with straps to keep it on the Harachis and they run on really hard surfaces. And he claimed that they had very little injuries um, I don't think he had a lot of evidence for that, but at least that's what he reported. So everyone got really excited about that, right? And at the same time, the five-finger shoe came out, and Barefoot Ted, who'd been running the hills of Hollywood and needing a pair of shoes that protected his feet better than rice sandals and things that fell apart, was the one that really kind of grabbed onto those five fingers and you know the rest is history it was like this is a great shoe for people who are barefooters that need to protect their feet at different times so now you've got these five fingers and born to run and this whole idea that less is more and you know the shoe industry is evil and all of that and so people started to put these shoes on and just run and people got injured and it became you know i think it's one of the travesties of the whole movement because i think what happened is it really set it back many, many, many years. Um, it would be like going to the gym and lifting 500 pounds when you've never lifted. If you got injured, I wouldn't tell you don't ever go to the gym. I'd say don't do it that way. And this is how I feel about the minimal shoes. 
Um, I think that it's really important that if you're going to do something that's going to require more of your body, then you got to give your body time to adapt. Right. So we, when I came up to um, Boston, so I, I left Delaware after 20 years. It was a great, great run in, in Delaware, but I really wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, I wanted to take the research that we had done in, um, in some of the, you know, maybe a little bit in the barefoot running, but even in the retraining, um, well-lined soft landing, some of the forefoot research we had done, and I wanted to apply it in a clinic every single day. And so I wanted to have a clinic, but I also wanted to have a research lab that could integrate with the clinic so that the clinic generates the research questions and then the lab helps to inform clinical practice. To me, that's perfection. That's, that's nirvana. And I wanted to do it someplace where there were a lot of runners and Boston was my home and what better place than the home of the Boston Marathon. And, and you know, it's just a great, rich environment academically, medically, and for runners. And so when I came up here, I came up here with an idea that I wanted to do something a little disruptive, something a little bit different in, in thinking. And I came into a town that um, had lots of really unbelievable people treating runners, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm the new kid in town. I had to be really careful. I didn't want to come in like a, a bull in a china cabinet and, and say, you know, here, here I am. So we just slowly came in and we started to treat runners. We started to apply our gait retraining and the footwear, all of that. Um, we started to, to train the foot and, and had an approach that was different than um, maybe a standard physical therapy approach, right? And so this approach involves preparing the person to retrain. So when you talk about barefoot running, I mean, it'd be great. I think barefoot running is great. I think you get all of the sensory input that you should have. I mean, mm -hmm. your feet are just as sensate as your hands and fingers. Your, mm -hmm. your hands and your feet and your lips are the most sensate organs in the body, just about. So you know, we, we do lose something when we, when we put something over there, but uh, over them, but you've got to protect your feet just like you do when you're out in the cold or the wind or the rain. Um, and so, you know, minimal footwear, in my opinion, is probably the better way to go in terms of just protecting yourself and knowing that we're not going to get people to run barefoot all the time is sort of has been our approach. So in order to run barefoot, you need to strengthen your feet. Right? You need to be able to do what the support and that chronic support did for your feet. Mm -hmm. And so we started to, and, and we'd actually kind of been thinking about how our profession as PTs have been ignoring the foot. Mm -hmm. If you look at the past clinical guidelines, for example, um, by uh, the, the APTA guidelines for plantar fasciitis, even the most recent ones, I mean, they advocate all of the palliative, all of the, you know, uh, ice and orthotics and night splints and, you know, all, all of those kinds of things, but, but really very little emphasis on strengthening. And yet, if you look at any other joint in the body that they have guidelines for, it always involves strengthening. And it just underscores this lack of appreciation for how much our feet are dynamic uh, parts of our body that they, we need to be able to use that, those muscles. And they're very important in the whole gait cycle. And so we had written this, this, this paper in BJSM, actually it kind of arose out of sitting around a, a, a fire pit with some bourbon and drinking. <laughs> Most good ideas come out of bourbon. And, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You don't know. I know you don't know. Um, 
And so we wrote this paper to say, you know what? We have a core in our foot, just like we, and it's a concept, just like the lumbar pelvic core is a concept. We understand that, but you have these small muscles that have these small cross-sectional areas that actually are not prime movers because the moment arms are really small, the, the cross-sectional areas are small, they're basically stabilizers. And that when they're strong and they stabilize the foot, the foot then, the extrinsic muscles can do their job, just like we talk about in the lumbopelvic region. Um, and so we didn't, you know, we really didn't know how people would accept this idea, but it has been, a lot of people I think have embraced it. I think it had, the paper had 100,000 downloads. Um, I think people are starting to talk about the foot more. And that was really our goal in all of that, um, is to try to get people more aware of it. So we have a foot core program that every single one of our runners goes through um, because anyone coming in who's been in shoes all their life, their feet are going to be weak to some degree. It's like you walk in having worn um, a, a neck brace for life. Your neck is going to be weak or your back brace for life. So, you know, in, in these individuals, we, we just assume their feet are weak. We have ways of looking at them functionally and watching how their arch collapses, but everyone still undergoes a, a foot core program. And then our goal is to make, to, to develop well-lined soft landings, right? So that may be realigning their limbs. So if they've got a collapsing inward, um, an inward uh, medial deviation of their lower extremity, um, we know that that's related to telephormal pain, IT band syndrome, tibial stress fractures, at least in the literature. Um, and so again, it's you're not loading the musculoskeletal system in a well-aligned way, and you're likely to increase your risk for injuries. So the rest of the program is focused on trying to give, to develop the capacity in that person to be able to land well before we even put them on a treadmill. Yeah. Before we ever get them on the treadmill, they go through like a, probably a six week program mm -hmm. of going through strengthening of the foot and the core. And then we put them on the, pro on the treadmill and we go through the eight to 12 sessions of retraining, slowly bringing up their time and slowly removing the feedback based on the research we'd done early on. So that by the time they leave, our goal is to have well-lined soft landings and of course not have pain. And then we follow them for some time after they leave. So that, that's kind of the program and how it came to be. Yeah. So let me ask you a question regarding the, the foot strengthening program. It, it, to me, it makes absolute sense that if you're going to convert somebody or move somebody to more of a, of a four foot strike pattern, that you've got to condition the foot and get it ready for what's coming your way. Do you think there's that would be value in people who opt to stay more of a rear foot strike pattern to still do a foot strengthening program? So I think you know my, my philosophy on this. Um, I, I believe that forefoot striking is as natural to running as rearfoot striking is to walking. Um, and so our feeling is if someone wants to stay a rearfoot striker, we don't try to change them. Mm -hmm. If they, they're coming to us and they're injured, then we have a program and we give them the reason, the rationale, we give them the background for it. Um, but if you remain a rearfoot striker, you need to be in shoes that have cushioning. Mm -hmm. You have to, because if you look at the Ryan study, for example, mm -hmm. when you go to partial minimal shoes that don't have the cushioning and you still have the impact, you increase your, it's, it appears that your risk for injury may increase, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got to stay in shoes that have cushioning. Those shoes are likely going to have some, some arch support. These are kind of neutral shoes. If you think about a neutral shoe, they're still going to have some heel counter to them. And so it's like strengthening the foot 
and then putting it back into something that supports it. And that to me doesn't make sense. It'd be like mm -hmm. strengthening your neck for an hour a day and then putting that brace back on your neck. That's our philosophy. Mm -hmm. And that by getting them onto the ball of their foot, not only, and we have research with Roy Chung, um, looking at foot strengthening so mm -hmm. that the, the muscles of the feet get stronger. There's studies that have been done by Histon that looked at um, um, the, the Achilles tendon. Mm -hmm. So increased strength, increased stiffness, increased size of the Achilles tendon. When you think about a 52% lifetime incidence of Achilles tendonitis and 95% of runners are rear foot strikers, what would those, how would those statistics change if we actually transitioned people? Um, you look at knee and the load in the knee. Um, a recent paper by Janet Roper's group, uh, Jeanette Roper, um, or is it Genevieve Roper, sorry, uh, they actually showed a 50% reduction in patellofemoral contact stress early in stance with a forefoot strike. Mm -hmm. So that, that's our feeling. Our feeling is it'd be like someone coming in as a toe walker to me. And I know that sounds odd, but if someone comes in as a toe walker, I think that's not normal. Mm -hmm. So I think heel striking is not normal. And I think that when people ask me, why do people do it? Why are there 95% of people doing it? I think it's because the minute you put a cushion in somebody's heel, they stride out. And I have a video of a, a runner from the Eldoret region of Kenya um, who's never put shoes on. And you watch him run, and he's landing just slightly on the ball of his foot. You put him in a pair of running shoes, and he lands on his heel the very first time. So, I mean, I'm not saying that's going to happen every single time, but it's just interesting um, I think that's really what does it. Because if you look at people who are habitual barefoot runners, they tend to be forefoot strikers. Mm -hmm. So why, I guess my question to you guys, and Brian, I'll ask you, why do you think there's so much resistance to this change? Because I think the change puts us back in sync with the way that we were adapted to run, as opposed to saying, I don't care. I want to put these shoes on. I want to hit my heel. There just seems to be a real resistance to it. Well, I, I think I think you hit on it was you mentioned that roughly ninety five percent of the runners are are usually utilizing a rear foot strike pattern. Um, think about any sort of behavioral change that has just become inherent to that individual and what they're doing. Any level of change in the absence of pain and in the absence of a motivating factor to drive them to change, why change? And I'm, I'm and I'm not suggesting. I know you and I when when we give lectures and, and courses and we have a little bit of a debate at times because I, I do share your opinion, but not necessarily to the extent um, and say that and I don't, I'm not sure that everybody or that that's more the natural way. I think there's a, there's a, a, a plateau that exists where, where a variety of foot strikes can be, can work for people. Um, but I, I, I absolutely agree with you on the soft, well-aligned landings and that in, at, at times that a, a rear foot strike or a, sorry, a forefoot strike pattern makes sense. And that there oftentimes is a need to modify gait, um, especially in the injured runner. Yeah. But see, you're resisting it too. <laughs> I mean, hey, this, hey, this is my podcast. It is your podcast, but if you can your kids, right? If we started all kids in minimal shoes, yeah. which is obviously, it's my goal of my career. Before I ever retire, this is my goal, is that we get kids in minimal shoes. If we put them in minimal shoes, I guarantee you we'll have far less heel strikers in the world because it hurts to land on your heel. So if we could do that, I would love to see, and maybe I won't be around long enough to see the injury epidemiology, 
my guess is, my hypothesis is that our injury rates would be significantly lower. I want to tell you a quick story. So there's a, a gentleman who works in a close Christian community. He just did a talk with us. And um, he has the ability, he's a doc, who made the change himself because he was having foot problems. He now only runs in minimal shoes. He was a track athlete. Um, he's an he's a internal medicine doc now. In this close Christian community, he's the only one that sees everyone. And then he refers out for any problems that he has. He had so much success, he started treating his patients this way. He had so much success with his patients, he started to prophylactically. Now 80% of his community are in minimal shoes. But what's better is that he is the doc for the cross-country team, right? Mm. And the cross-country team, he got the coaches to transition all the kids into minimal shoes. Complete, and I'm talking no pat, no, no midsole at all. Mm. And not a single, they just had a season with no injuries. They had had two uh, season-ending stress fractures a couple of years before. They had a, one ankle sprain and a hamstring, like a mild pull. Mm-hmm. Not, no patellofemoral, no shin splints, no IT band, no stress fractures, no stress fractures, no stress fractures. That's unheard of. <laughs> yeah, it is. Like, I think yeah. this is powerful. And, you know, it's when people say, well, just let people do what they want. It's individual. I treat every patient individually, but there's a basic foundation. So the way I look at it, this is just the world according to Irene, um, is that there's a foundation of landing the way we're adapted to land. And then everybody has a different neuromuscular system and different tightnesses and strengths and weaknesses. And so, so that's, that's kind of how I approach it. So it's not really approaching every patient the same. They're not the same, but it's giving them to what I believe is their foundational, natural foot strike pattern. I like it. I like it. You don't have to agree. No, you know, you know, you know, I do agree. Actually, I think we agree quite a bit on 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 it. Is I think it's there's, you know, and actually back to your point about kids, uh, you know, I've I've known you for for quite a while, and my boys are ten and five right now, and they've not worn anything except minimal shoes, um, yeah. and both are pretty athletic. In fact, my uh, my oldest, when he was six, did a triathlon barefoot, um, or with Crocs on. He, he wore he wore Crocs on the bike and then slipped them off and did his run because he wanted to he wanted to be fast on the transition time. So <laughs> that's a good way to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The last thing I want to talk about is is just shoes in general and the construction of them because I never thought footwear mattered. Honestly, when I was mm-hmm. at Delaware, footwear was never even on my radar. But at here, every single patient we've had over six. 150 patients through our clinic now. And every single one of them, I look at their motion of their feet, which in slow motion with shoes, minimal shoes and barefoot. And minimal shoes and barefoot are really very similar. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. Even people who forfeit strike in regular shoes, they're way inverted and way plantar flexed. And, you know, even rear foot strikers, because you have a little bit of a flare or the shoes a little wider, it increases the torques at the ankle, the knee, and the hip. Casey Kerrigan showed this a long time ago. So your most, the lowest torques in your body are when you're running and walking barefoot. So again, it's this whole mismatch theory of evolution. If we're not living the lives our bodies were adapted for and there's a mismatch, we're gonna have problems, whether it's our cardiovascular system or our musculoskeletal system. You know, I still think it's just great. One of the, the highlights, I think, of of your career and what you've described is how you how you said how you said you used to study orthotics and yeah. the application of orthotics and trying to stabilize the foot and and it's a, it, it's a 180 in many ways with respect oh, to how you've gone at it yeah 
Totally. We take, our, now every person that comes into the clinic, we take them out of their orthotics yeah. the way we used to get them into them. So everybody goes out of their orthotics and they're happy to be out of them. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I, th- I think you're, 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 you're on the same page with this, that orthotics do have a place as probably a, a temporary pain yeah. relieving application, but not as a permanent, semi-permanent alignment structural modifier. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't do that anywhere else. Someone's going to show put them in a sling. But if you're a good PT, you get them out of that sling. You start strengthening. You do motor control and re-education. It's the same with the foot. Um, yeah. and it, but this, it's hard to get people out of that thinking. I think more and more people are believing are, are thinking this way. I think that there's a movement. I want to call it the decade of the foot. I was just at the International Foot and Ankle Biomechanics meeting, and we were talking about this. Like, we need to have a decade of the foot where people start to appreciate how it's so complex, which is why mm-hmm. we kind of lot, you know, make it just like a one segment kind of um, anatomical structure. But 26 bones, 33 articulations, each with six degrees of freedom of motion, four layers of arch muscles. It's complex because it moves in a very complex way. Mm-hmm. It's hard to measure. Yeah. So it's a little bit mysterious right now. With your, with your intrinsic training for the foot, or the foot training you guys do, is, is that accessible? Is that in one of your previous papers? Or how, how can we get a glimpse of that? Sure. Um, so we have a study that I did with Sarah Ridge. This was an interesting story because Sarah Ridge was at the University of Delaware, and she published the paper um, looking at um, the minimal shoes and bone stress injuries. Actually, she was looking at MRIs and seeing that you know people were showing some early signs of bone damage. And so I called her. I said, that's an awesome paper. But you know what? If we actually trained people and, and then sort of slowly got them into minimal shoes, maybe we could prevent this. So this started a, a collaboration. And we just um, were submitting a paper right now looking at um, transitioning to minimal shoes walking. This is just walking versus a foot intrinsic strengthening program. And we used MRI to look at the cross-sectional area. And in that paper, we have the program. So that'll be kind of the first paper that has the the actual program. It's an eight-week program. And honestly, there's nothing magic to it. You know, it includes things like doming, right? Doming. It includes, um, you know, ab and adduction. How many people can do this? I mean, we get all of our patients to be able to do this by the time they finish because those are your um, your dorsal and plantar interosseae. And, you know, we do things like, um, and we do the, the toe curls because that's important too. Um, so we have a progression. If we just take the doming, for example, we have them dome on two feet and they dome and they hold it. And then they dome on one foot so they can do that and they can balance. Then they dome and hop on two feet. Then they dome and hop on one foot. Then they hop um, forward, hop back, hop side to side, two feet, one foot. Then they hop off of a two inch bench or two inch uh, platform, then a four inch, then a six inch. Then they hop foot to foot to foot to foot. So this is the progression that we have people go through when they're, when they're transitioning to getting on the treadmill. And you can do that for every exercise. You know, we, we have a very um, strong calf program. And, you know, we were, we were kind of getting stuck in our calf strength. And so fortunately, us in academia, we, can, we have our lifelines of people like Jill Cook, who's a world expert in Achilles. And, you know, I, I called her and she said, you know, you got to be adding those isometrics. So we have a progressive program for the calf, but it also includes eccentric, concentrics, and isometrics. So um, the program is that, and basically it gets more difficult as you go, you know, in time across. It's eight weeks long, and um, 
Yeah. So I'm, I'd be happy to even send it to you if you're interested, but it will be in that paper as an appendix, I believe, or maybe a table. It depends on what, what the journal says. Okay. I look forward to it. Thanks. Yeah. That'd be great. Well, I want to respect your time because I know you've got a lot to do and we're running up against the hour. So I want to give you a chance because I, I like this question, especially from pioneers in the area. If you could kind of map out the next 10, 15 years, what kind of, what work and that isn't it to be your own work. It can be anybody's work. But what what work really excites you? And are you looking forward to to seeing? Or if nobody's doing it, what kind of work needs to be done to really advance this area of of running medicine? So I think that we don't have good prospective studies looking at, uh, for example, you know, increasing cadence versus forfeit striking, and looking at people not one month or three months, but one year, two year, three years down the road, like, does it really make a difference mm -hmm. right in the long mm -hmm. term? I think we need prospective studies on some of these different ideas that people have about reducing injuries. Cause right now people are basing it on retrospective studies. They're not basing it on prospectives. There's a few short, I mean, we've done a few, there's a few out there, but I think those long-term studies are needed. I think the other thing that's really needed is to look at the effect of the, um, like, for example, if you were to transition someone to a forfeit strike in minimal shoes, what does that do to the bone, the musculoskeletal mm -hmm. system? Because that's the big question. That's the big fear. We're going to fracture the metatarsals. I happen to think if you do it the right way, you're going to strengthen the metatarsals, right? So I think that looking at that and looking at the effect on the musculoskeletal system is really important. Getting at more of the, most of the work that I've done until recently where we're looking at some of the cross-sectional areas of the muscle, but it's been more external mechanics, right? Ground reaction forces. Yeah. I think um, looking at, you know, modeling and looking at internal loads and, and seeing their effect and, and looking at people who've been injured and look at the actual internal loads because we're, we're making, there's a big black box that we all kind of just mm -hmm. assume um, that something's happening at the tissue and we don't know. So, I mean, I think those are some of the things that I'd like to see happen. Um, but I, I'm going to end by saying I truly believe that if we were running the way closer to the way we're adapted to run and shoes that don't interfere with the way that we strike the ground and allow our musculoskeletal system to adapt to that, that we'd have far fewer, I'm not going to say none, but far fewer running injuries. Irene, thank you so much for joining us today. That was fantastic. It, it flew by, um, and of course, we're out of, we're out of time, but uh, maybe I can convince you or, or buy you a bourbon to come back on at a later time. <laughs> I'd be happy to. I hope I wasn't rambling too much. I felt a little like I was rambling. Oh, that was great. Fantastic. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. On behalf of my co-host, Mark Anderson, we'd like to thank you for tuning in. And as a reminder, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes. Registration for the 2018 Mountainland Running Summit is open, so check out the full programming online at summit.mlrehab.com. As always, you can find more information on all of the running medicine resources offered by Mountainland Physical Therapy at mlrehab.com run. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No exercise program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. 
The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, distributed, transmitted, displayed, published, or broadcast without the prior written permission of Mountainland Rehabilitation. Visit www.mlrehab.com for more information.